Hello and welcome back to This is Modern Rock, the podcast that takes a month-by-month look at the Billboard Modern Rock charts. I'm your host, Will Westerkow, and for listeners who are new to the show, here's what you can expect. Every episode focuses on one particular month on the Modern Rock charts. I bring in a guest, and we listen to four songs that charted during that month, including all of the songs that reached number one. Today, I'm excited for a few reasons. First of all, because we finally made it to season six. That's right, we are ready to talk about 1993, which is the year that I, as a 13-year-old, finally discovered the radio and started getting tuned into alternative music as it was being released. I'm also excited because I have a very special guest. Before I introduce him, though, we are going to listen to our mystery achievement. That's where I play a song that reached kind of the lower reaches of the modern rock charts, and I'm going to let listeners see if they can figure out what it is. So here it is, this week's mystery achievement. I'd like to welcome my special guest today, Larry Kerwin. Thanks for joining me. Pleasure, Will. Larry, you are a musician, a playwright, an author. You do a lot of stuff, a lot of creative endeavors. Yeah, I was a a playwright before we formed Black 47 in uh, October 1989. I had been in a band called major thinkers and we had a big record deal with epic records we got dropped the band broke up and i went off to become a playwright and uh, i did that for four years and then i began to miss the music scene so when i came back into the music world i met a guy called chris Byrne in a bar one night and we made a, a resolution at that moment that we would be a political band. The clash had broken up and Bob Marley was dead. It seemed like there was a big opening. And besides that, we both came from political backgrounds. And so we formed um, Black 47. Now, what happened, though, in the four years that I had been working as a playwright in the theater, in plays, character apart from telling story, is pretty much everything. So when I came back into music, I took that skill that I had picked up being a playwright into modern music. And I didn't realize it at the time, but all the songs were kind of character-driven and told a story. So I guess there was a symbiosis between the playwriting world and the music world that began for me in October 1989 when we formed Black 47. Well, we're going to be hearing more about Black 47 later on in the episode. I have one more question, I think, before we get into some music. I wanted to talk briefly about one of your more recent projects. You were involved in a Broadway play. Yeah, it came from... um, a musical I'd written called Hard Times that was a success 
at a place called The Cell on 23rd Street in New York. And then it got picked up by a big-time producer, Gart Trebinsky, and over the next six, seven years, we fashioned it into a big Broadway musical called Paradise Square that had, I think, 38 people on stage. So I conceived it and co-wrote the book and uh, wrote some of the music and in general kind of steered it along to its ultimate run on Broadway. It finally came out in 2022, if I'm not mistaken, and was nominated for 10 Tony Awards. Yep, it did really well. Congratulations on that. It's amazing. Thanks. Yeah, it was it was a hard one to pull home. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we jump into the charts for 1993? Going back in time, this is pretty much 30 years ago, if you can believe it. We're talking about January of 1993. It's an interesting month on the charts. The songs that hit number one this month are not songs that have really stuck around in the popular conscious as far as I can tell. These are not songs that I knew at all before researching for this show. So that's kind of unusual. Yeah. The first band we're going to be talking about is a band called Ned's Atomic Dust Bin. Mm-hmm. And this band was formed in England in 1987. They were named after an episode of The Goon Show. Ah. They're led by frontman John Penny. And the most notable thing I could find about this band is that they have two bass players. (laughs) I don't know if we'll be able to hear that in the song or not, but uh, you can listen out for it and see if you can tell. Ned's Atomic Dust Band charted five times on the modern rock charts total. They reached number one just once for one week, and that's the song we're going to be hearing today. The song is called Not Sleeping Around, and it comes from their second album, Are You Normal? Do you know anything about Ned's Atomic Dustbin? Is this a band you were familiar with at all? I was really familiar with the name. Oddly enough, with Black 47, we didn't really listen to anything else. Everyone came from, you know, a, a kind of a far-out background. You know, the trombone player was a Latin jazz player. Hmm. Jeff Blyde had been in Dexie's Midnight Runners, but the soul version of them. So there wasn't a great appreciation for alternative music in the band. So we didn't listen to the radio. The only music we could all come together on was Miles Davis or something like that. (laughs) But I do remember the name Ned's Atomic Dustbin, and I looked them up. And I have to say, I I did notice the whole thing with the double bass, because it's a powerful rhythm section. And I thought, how did they do that? And then I, I looked it up too, and I saw the that there was two bass players in it. And, I, and then I realized that they got a really good drummer too. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's go ahead and listen to it. Here's Not Sleeping Around. It's kind of one of those songs from the times. I, I hear what you're saying with the samples. I, 
being a record producer from from that period myself, I know everybody was was using samples, you know. Um, and you know the problem with it all is it tends to sound samey after a while because when you play the next song you're going to play, which you've informed me about already, there's a similarity to the two sounds rather than the songs even. And it's one of the problems I find with, with pop music is that everybody tries to sound the same. Someone comes up with a sound and say for the snare drum or something, and then I can almost tell what the, the period is from hearing the, the snare drum because it's not the original drum, snare drum the guy is using in the studio. People probably don't realize that. It's whoever has done the big remix and I think this was the big period of remixing, you know, that you would record the album and you would mix it and then the record company would take it and they would give it to someone else to remix. So it would come back sounding. <laughs> was that me? Jeez, I sound pretty good there. <laughs> I sound a lot better than I thought I did at the time. You know? But at the yeah. same time, everything sounded the same. Yeah, I, I mean... The notes I wrote about the song are pretty much what you said. I thought, you know, it's energetic enough, yeah. but the lyrics don't really make an impression on me. This kind of music, it's blending into one. It seems practically interchangeable with a number of other songs that are coming out at this time. And I wasn't really sure if that's just because I'm listening to so many songs. You know, I'm listening to 20 songs for every episode, and, and they do start to blend together. So uh, it is nice that, that you had kind of the, the same impression it's not just because I'm listening to so much music here. It's that they actually are sounding no. kind of the same. Yeah. yeah. And that particular period was that way. Um, I think we can expound on that when we hear the, the next couple of songs. Yeah. It always leaves me curious when something like this happens. I, I always want to know, like, why, why did this one go to number one? You know, like R.E.M., Man on the Moon. I don't know if you're familiar with that song. But I am, yeah. It reached number two. I think that's a pretty strong song. Why did people want to play uh, Not Sleeping Around over R.E.M., just as an example? Or 10,000 Maniacs, you know, charted this month. I guess it's just the tastes and the fads. and It's the fad and the fashion of the, of the times. You know? Maybe because it was probably getting played in um, dance halls at the time. Because it is a good, it's a good groove to it. Yeah. Well, all right. Uh, with that, then, let's move on to our second number one of the month. This is a band called Jesus Jones. We've talked about Jesus Jones on the show before because they reached number one a season or two back with the song Right Here, Right Now. And Right Here, Right Now is a song that has stuck around. It's been used in a ton of commercials, and I think it still gets some radio play. And, and generally, people know that song. This number one that we're going to hear today, The Devil You Know, the same cannot be said. I think this one has largely disappeared. Just to catch people up, this is also an English band. They were formed in 1988. They're led by Mike Edwards. And in 1993, we're hearing music from their, oh, I think it's their third album, which is called Perverse. This one's actually sort of interesting because Perverse is one of the first albums that was recorded almost entirely on a computer. I think everything other than the vocals were recorded onto floppy disks and in the words of Mike Edwards, turned into a whole bunch of zeros and ones and mixed around and edited that way. 
Does that add anything to the music? I don't know, but it's a first, and I think it kind of pointed in the direction that a lot of music editing would be going in the future. This album was heavily inspired by techno and rave music. They still wanted to make a rock album. They just wanted to use techniques from electronic music to construct what they thought was a more modern-sounding rock album. Let's go ahead and listen to it. This is The Devil You Know. I think this is Jesus Jones's final number one modern rock hit out of five total charting songs. Here it is. I did know who this man was, but I actually thought it was a person. I was really interested in the name of this person. <laughs> now that mm-hmm. I've heard the band, I'm not quite as interested. But, you know, one of the things I find about the music of this era is that it was all influenced by the whole idea of getting on MTV. If you're going to be a success, you kind of had to have a good video. So I was struck by watching Jesus Jones that, you know, all those dumb moves that you, you associate with, <laughs> they're all there, you know. And and I'm sticking up for the band, you know, Jesus Jones and this. You know, I would have preferred just to see this band. They, it's a good song, this one. I think I like it. And then the video, you're looking at you're looking at a lot of hair again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of poser moves, you know. I don't blame bands for those in the least because you're put in this awful situation where you're waiting around all day and the camera guys are setting up and everything, and then you're told, We want you to be really dynamic in this. So you're playing a guitar and you're thinking how do I look really dynamic? I'm not Hendrix. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you got to pull some dumb move. And then everybody says, that's a great move. And then you, you watch the video later and think, oh, my God, you know, that is so fucking cliched. How did I do that? You know, if you want to show what the band is like, really show, show them live. You know, mm-hmm. that's my take on, on Jesus. <laughs> sure. Yeah. For me, the song is, I think I like it better than Not Sleeping Around. I I still don't think it's super interesting to me, although it's got, you know, it's got a little Indian tinged flavor in there, maybe. I have listened to this album a number of times, though, and I think it's a totally solid, fine album. Like, I don't know if I would say, like, this is a number one hit song for me, but overall, I thought the album was was all right. One good thing is this band is still playing, and I like that. There's so many things that can go wrong in the music world. If you manage to make a career out of the band, you, you know, you've, you've done really well. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't believe this band ever broke up. They had a bit of a dry spell throughout the 2000s. Who did? Uh, yeah. I'm, <laughs> but they did release an album in 2018. And as far as I know, yeah, they're still together. So. Yeah. All right, well, let's move on. We heard our number ones for the month. We're going to go to a number two song. 
This is by an artist named Nena Cherry. I was very aware of her. John Cherry is her father. He was a jazz trumpet player. I went to see him a lot on the, the Lower East Side where I lived. Jazz at that point, when I was listening in the early and mid-80s, when I first saw him, it was everybody, you know, showing how fast they could play. But Don Cherry was into melody, and there was a sweetness to what he played. And I became a huge fan. So when I heard that Nina or Nena, whatever, and Cherry was his daughter, I was fascinated. I wanted to see how does she sound? And she sounded great. So I was a fan of hers. You know, I'm surprised she's not a bigger star than she is. Yeah. I'll give a little background on her. Nena Cherry was born in Sweden. Her mother is Swedish, and her father is from the Republic of Sierra Leone. And they split when she was young. And like you said, her mom married musician Don Cherry when um, Nena was still quite young. I didn't know that. Well, I thought that Don was her actual biological father. Yeah, I think he was essentially her father from the time she was maybe two or something. So he's been in her life. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Side note, though, I discovered this when I was looking through the liner notes for one of her albums. You know, she thanked her family. She thanked everyone. And she thanked someone named Eagle Eye. And my brain went, Eagle Eye? I've heard of one person named Eagle Eye. That's the musician Eagle Eye Cherry, and then <laughs> slowly the gears started turning. Yes, it turns out that her half-brother is a musician Eagle Eye Cherry, who had a big hit with the song Save Tonight in 1998. And more recently, her daughter Mabel has become a musician, and she's been a pretty constant chart presence in the UK over the last five years or so. So we've got a very musical family, and all of them seem to be doing pretty well for themselves. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I like to hear happy endings. There are so few of them. <laughs> yeah. The Cherry family moved around quite a bit. They were in Sweden. They moved to New York when Nina was quite young. I know that they moved to London at some point because Don was tour. I think he toured with the Slits. And Nana followed him there and uh, befriended a bunch of punk bands. This was when she was uh, a young teenager. And she ended up playing in a bunch of punk and post-punk bands, including the Slits, for a little yeah. while. She was in a band called Rip, Rig, and Panic. Eventually, she ended up working with Massive Attack on their Blue Lines album, oh, which I thought right. was interesting. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. And then, um, I guess, I don't know when the album was released, maybe 89, uh, or 90, she released her first album called Raw Like Sushi, and the song Buffalo Stance was a big hit. The album was a big hit, and uh, she was nominated for a Best New Artist Grammy. She lost to Millie Vanilli. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. In 1992, she released her second album, Homebrew, and this is the album that we're going to be hearing a song from. Nina Cherry worked with Jeff Barrow from Portishead on this album, and I mentioned she had worked with the guys from Massive Attack before, and as a result, I think I was expecting this album to be a little more alternative than it actually is. Like, there's trip-hop touches on it, and there's some funk, and there's some jazz, but overall, yeah, it is, it is more like R&B, hip-hop flavored as a whole, uh, the big exception being the song that we're going to be hearing today, which is Trout, which does have more of a rock vibe. 
than most of the rest of the album. And part of that is because it features major use of guitar samples from a Steppenwolf song called The Pusher. And it also uses drum samples from Led Zeppelin's When the Levee Breaks. Listen out for those. They're pretty hard to miss. And the other thing is this song features R.E.M. frontman Michael Stipe, uh, who was doing a lot of collaborations around this time. Now let's go ahead and listen to it. Here is the song Trout. Parents and teachers get together, get cool. Children need to learn about sex in school. Children need to learn about sex in school. You think they don't do it? Don't get fooled. That's my favorite by far of the songs, mostly because of her voice. Mm -hmm. She's a really good singer, you know, and she knows it and she's confident in what she's doing. Yeah. I instantly got the John Bonham thing and was like, wow, where did I hear uh -huh. these songs before? <laughs> and they're so up in your face. And it works because there's not a lot else going on except the Steppenwolf guitar. And I was thinking when I was listening to this, I was thinking, I know this guitar riff from somewhere. Because I love the song, The Pusher, but I haven't heard it in so long. I love Steppenwolf. I they were just a great and underrated band. And the guitar sample they use, it really swings this song along. And she is just such a star on it. It's a very successful collaboration. And it was a joy to listen to yeah, I, li I liked it too. I was not familiar with it. I did enjoy the album. I just, I, I was hoping that it was a little more trip hop influenced or a little more rock influenced than it than it turned out to be. But I don't know. It's possible that she wasn't even able to do that had she wanted to, just because expectations following the first album might have required her to keep it more in this vein. It's down to what the record company was thinking at the time. I would imagine. You know, you're dealing with a, a big budget and everything, and you're trying to come up with the songs, you're trying to come up with the arrangements, and these guys are sitting in judgment over you. Yeah. Especially over a woman at that point in time. And women didn't have the same freedom as they have in the recording studio and everything now. So, Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the amount of freedom women had at the time. One of the stories that kept coming up when I was researching her is that uh, she had gone on, I think, Top of the Pops to perform Buffalo Stance, you know, a year or so before this, and she was seven or eight months pregnant at the time, and yeah. apparently that was a, a really big deal, and <laughs> reporters were shocked or outraged or upset or concerned or whatever they might have been, which from today's standpoint, I, I find it kind of hilarious, but... And you think of Rihanna. Yeah. It actually made that performance, I thought, on uh, Super Bowl. Good point, yeah. Nana Cherry is uh, breaking barriers so that Rihanna can be celebrated 30 years later. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a different world. Uh, is it a better world now? I don't know. But um, you kind of knew the enemy better back in that point. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, let's move on to our fourth and final band of the episode. This is your band, Black 47. Larry, can you tell me how this band came about? We formed in October 1989. It was just myself on electric guitar and programming a drum machine. And Chris Byrne was a New York City cop, the detective, and also a Brooklyn rapper. A very unlikely duo. When I met Chris, his band was breaking up, and he had gigs the next Friday and Saturday night. So in that week, we had to come up with four sets to play in the Irish bars. It was a real tempestuous start because people in the Irish bars we played in didn't want to hear original music, and they didn't want it to be loud. Mm -hmm. But I had a loud-sounding band major thinkers and uh, Turner and Corwin of Wexford. So we were loud and proud and we used to go in and we would insist that the televisions be turned off. I used to be in working class bars in the Bronx and Queens and uh, neither the patrons nor the owners liked that. So we kept getting fired every night. <laughs> but there were so many bars to choose from that we would just – uh, we would just go and play in the next one, get fired from that, and get played in the next one. And then all the time, we were getting better at what we were doing, and we were getting more and more original songs. All right. Well, the song we're going to listen to is called Funky Kaylee. And I know this song was floating around for a little while before it became a modern rock hit. Can you tell me a little bit about that? We recorded the song, first of all, on an independent album, Black 47. And then... We started to break around the country and EMI came in and they wanted to re-release it. But our, our manager, Elliot Roberts at the time, he brought me to another one of his clients, Rick Ocasek from the Cars. And Rick said, let's take five or six of these songs from the original album and we remix them and redo them and bring me another four or five and we'll do those in the studio. But when we first did a remixed and added some stuff, I, I would dare say, to Funky Kaylee, he said straight off, this is a hit. I would say, come on, man. You know, <laughs> who's going to listen to this Irish song, you know? And he said, I have sold 30 million records. How many of you sold? <laughs> I was thinking, well, I've sold about 30, maybe. <laughs> he said, so I know these things. This is a hit. Trust me. This first song is going to put you guys on everybody's radar because it's so different and it's so infectious. Even though there's a girl in it who has gotten pregnant and the guy has gone to America and he's begging her to come out and live with them in, in America. So the idea behind the song was, whatever you do, if you're going to have sex, use protection so you're not going to get a girl pregnant. But the song itself, from the minute we started playing, it was so uproarious and uplifting that nobody really minded that the girl was getting pregnant in the song and the guy had skedaddled. It's interesting that you brought that up about using protection because Trout, once they get about halfway into the song, you realize, 
Nina is talking about sex education and Michael Stipe is rapping about strapping on a Jimmy hat or whatever he says. So in some sense, we, we've got a, a couple of uh, safe sex songs on the charts here at the same time. Obviously, Michael Stipe and, and Nina and I were, were kind of thinking on the same level is, you know, whatever you do, use protection. Yeah. The AIDS virus had been around at this point and uh, so many of us had lost friends and everything through AIDS so I guess that was in the air at the time but in the Black 47 song Funky Kaylee everybody seemed to not even caught that message it's like wow let's have a party (laughs) you made the song too fun well and you know I, I did that a lot at that point because I was really influenced by William Butler Yeats the poet I had read some years before this a great quotation of his where he said that poetry should be as cold and passionate as the dawn. What he was saying, I finally figured out, is that if you're going to do a sad song, add a little bit of happiness to it. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to do a happy song, add a little bit of sadness to it and Obviously, what I was thinking with this message song about we're in protection is, you know, let's whoop it up Yeah, in the eighth dichotomous way. Well, before we listen to it, can you tell us what exactly a Kaylee is for those who are not familiar? A Kaylee is two different things. A Kaylee is a dance you go to where... They only play traditional Irish music, right? And most people now will be aware of what river dance was Mm -hmm. and doing that type of step dancing. That's a Kaylee dance. But a Kaylee also is like a a get-together and a happy event. Well, all right. Let's go ahead and listen to it. Here is Black 47's Funky Kaylee, which reached number 27 on the Modern Rock Charts. In January Yeah, that one was good. When I go through the charts picking the songs that I want to listen to for each episode, sometimes it's tough. Sometimes it's like there's too many songs I want to listen to. Sometimes it's like I can't find any songs that I'm interested in. In this case, I went down the list and it was just like, not that interesting, not that interesting. And I got to Funky Kaylee and it was just, it was one of those songs where you're like, boom, this is it. This is a song that I want to put on the show. It was immediately standing out to me. It was different. And, you know, like you said, lyrically, there's a story and it's refreshing and it's enjoyable to have a story in a song 
especially one that's compelling. So yeah, I was just immediately drawn to this. I think it's great. By the end of the year, I don't know how they did it, but they had the, the top alternative songs and we came second with that one. Pearl Jam came first that year. And I remember thinking, wow, wow, we came second to Pearl Jam. This is great. <laughs> so the song was getting more popular as it went along in the course of the year. So, um, and that's still popular. If I don't play it at a gig and I do solo gigs sometimes still, people get really disappointed and I got to do it as an encore. Yeah. I assume the song is not autobiographical. No, that was one of the big things that people would say all the time. You know, how could you? <laughs> because I, I was so used to writing in, in character form and then singing in the first person character that people just assumed that every song I sang was autobiographical. And certain aspects of everything I did were autobiographical. The fact that I had emigrated over here and I had been illegal here and all of that stuff, that was that was all true, but not the uh, making a, a young woman pregnant. That was, you see, when I grew up in Ireland, because there wasn't uh, any birth control, so there were a lot of pregnancies. Mm -hmm. And I came from a town of about 15,000 people, right? So that there were two choices that the guy and the woman had to make, get married, or the guy would just go to London and disappear, not come home. So yeah. it was a very stark kind of a reality. Uh, Ireland in particular, at that point before birth control was uh, legal. Yeah. Wow. Well, all right. That was our four songs for the month. Is there anything that we should point listeners to if listeners want to hear more of your music or read anything else you've done? Yeah, there's the black47.com website and uh, there's a Facebook page, Larry Kerwin. And I do a weekly show on Sirius XM called Celtic Crush. It's a three-hour show and uh, I play a lot of music and talk about it in historical and political and just any kind of terms. I feel like it's all improv. And my latest novel is called Rockaway Blue. And I'm still in New York, mostly writing for theater now. I'm pretty happy in the theatrical world, especially writing musicals, because they combine the two talents I have for playwriting and composing and it was great to take paradise square to broadway uh, it's the top of the heap and um, you just learn so much from each project you do but um yeah life goes on yeah all right that sounds great if anybody wants to get a hold of me they can reach me at this is modern rock at gmail.com for me it's uh either Larry Kerwin at Gmail or BLK47 at AOL. I kept the old AOL because I'm too lazy to change it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Listeners, if you haven't already done so, if you could you know, like, subscribe, review, all that sort of good stuff, that'd be great. I'd appreciate it. You know, Keep on listening. We'll see you in February 1993. And uh, Larry, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a real pleasure. 
I learned a lot and I had a good time. Thank you, man. It was nice to go back to 1993, yeah. Oh, and I almost forgot the mystery achievement for the month is Love See No Color by The Farm, which reached number 30 on the Modern Rock Charts in January of 1993. All right, catch you all next time. Have a good one. All the best. <laughs>